Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. Welcome to the Victor Frankel Meaning Academy podcast. I am Dr. Daniel A. Franz, more commonly just known as Dr. Dan, with my good friend, Rabbi Dr. Baruch B. Halevi B. It's been a while, man. I have missed you terribly, and I think our audience has as well. How have you been? I'm much better now that I get to see you in your cardigan. I just feel at home, at peace. It's a good year. It's a good yes. year. Yes. I had to start the year off with the cardigan. No, not just any cardigan, B. But the dude himself, the great, Lebo- the big Lebowski, I just, you know, after after so much time away, uh, away from, from work and you, I, I just need more dude in my life. So, uh, yeah, I figured I'd sport the cardigan just for you. I like it. It's got a little Aztec theme going on there, and it's not a good segue to our topic. I don't even know what to do with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where you're going. Actually, I do, because I can actually bring some Aztec into this. Uh, today's theme has a lot to do with a lot of things you and I have been paying attention to these past couple weeks. For me, just uh, many people know I, I read uh, Drunk, How We Danced and Sipped Our Way to Civilization uh, by Edward Slingerland, and then just finished up, like just yesterday, Mora Rescues, um, uh, the, oh my goodness, I forget, the the infinity, the immortality drug. Um, you know, it has a lot to do with these substances throughout history and how civilization, and particularly religion, may have been influenced by substances uh, of the past thousand years. Um, I'll make sure I include those in, in the show notes, but uh, most of you have probably heard of those if you've listened to the poet warrior, uh, Joe Rogan. He's had both of those authors on and talks about them a lot. All that for me brings us to um, January. You know, I'm uh, People may not know this, but I'm a licensed substance abuse clinical addictions counselor, and I do a lot of work in that. And a lot of people these days, today, these few days, are talking about what's it called? Sober January? No, no January. What, what is it? What's the what's the phrase? I've heard about it around, but something like that. Yeah, sober yeah. something. So we talk about resolutions and goals, and I thought we'd talk about sober January, but also your outstanding uh, article recently submitted to all of your listeners and followers about be the goalie like i'm a big hockey fan and i, I want to weave that in here as well i'm out of my depth when it comes to hockey so you'll explain you know uh, the context but i'll definitely be happy to talk on that um all these you know our topics are always divinely orchestrated the nuos as dr frankel would say has it has its hand in our lives and in our conversation because literally as i was getting on this call friend of mine in Israel who's involved in the cannabis industry texts me and says, hey, are you involved in psychedelics at all? Because psychedelics is the new up and coming drug of choice, if you will. And we can talk about that. Um, But I just do feel like this is an important topic. And I have professional and personal connections to it. And I also have a complicated and mixed sort of bag around um, 
uh, these, this topic. So let's get into it. Yeah, I think I think as a culture, the is particularly in the U.S., we have a complicated and mixed bag of thoughts and feelings and policies around substances. Um, it, many people who know me and, and have heard me talk about this know that you know you're you're right. Psychedelics are coming up. Um, we are currently in the second year, I believe, of a FDA approved uh, um, protocol uh, and training for therapists to become psychedelic. How's that go? Psychedelic assisted therapy providers, which in my understanding basically means you get to sit in your office and watch somebody trip. Um, I, I've looked into it. It's a fairly expensive year-long training program uh, by one of your favorite universities has this uh, Naropa University, but also several other outfits are providing this, um, but no prescribing possibilities uh, as a therapist or the doctor that I have um, or, or you as well, but we would get to sit and watch people. And I believe it's uh, ketamine has been online for a couple of years for the treatment of hard to treat depression and PTSD. MDMA, or you know, more commonly known as ecstasy, will be available here, I believe, this year. And psilocybin is, you know, the the magic mushroom itself is in the final stages of of testing and FDA approval. And as we know, there are many, um, not many, there are a few areas in the U.S. where it has now been legalized. What do you think about all that? What does what from a logotherapeutic perspective? Let me give some context before we get into the logotherapeutic, because I um, have been professionally involved with the cannabis industry. Um, Ten years ago, I started a cannabis company while I was a rabbi that went over like a lead balloon. Wow. Um, Hold on. You... <laughs> I'm going to have it's going to take me some time. I'm going to do some therapy with myself on that one. A rabbi. And the... what does it mean to, to start a business in the cannabis industry, if you don't mind me asking? Sure. So um, cannabis has been legalized here. In, I'm now in Colorado at the time I was in um, uh, right outside of Boston. But it was it was legalized here in Colorado over 10 years ago. In 2014, Massachusetts um, passed, I think it was 2014, passed legislation to make it um, legal for medicinal purposes. And it was structured structured in every state differently. Well, the way it was structured in Massachusetts was as a nonprofit and medicinal purposes. And I was looking for a new way to both generate revenue. I was very interested in financial models that are sustainable and responsible. That's a whole other topic we should do sometime because I don't believe nonprofit model is sustainable. I don't think it's ultimately responsible, at least the way it's currently presented. And I was responsible for a very large nonprofit called the synagogue. And I was looking for ways to generate revenue and also to promote the state of Israel. Um, because Israel is the birthplace of medical cannabis. It was born there in the 1950s by a professor named Raphael Meshulam at Hebrew University, who discovered what is now called CBD, separating THC, which is the hallucinogenic aspect, from the quote-unquote therapeutic aspects. We could argue this conversation, uh, in this conversation, um, CBD. And voila, um, medical cannabis was born. And so Israel has most of the cannabis R&D in the world. Uh, it's the by far the leading edge of all things um, cannabis, medical cannabis related. So I um, brought together a bunch of investors and we formed what was called then Sierra Naturals, still called Sierra Naturals. 
and it was a cannabis company that was um, going to be growing cannabis, selling cannabis, and using those profits, as I call it, for conscious cannabis to do good in the world. And so that's what we did. We ended up um, taking it public and selling it, and it didn't do as much good for the world as I would have hoped. It did a lot of good for a lot of people's checkbooks, and um, and that was a little disappointing to me. But the bottom line was, I got a real, I got a master's level degree education in the world of cannabis. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Whew. Wow. wow. You know, I've, I've been meaning to ask you about that one for a long time. So thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you the uh, the diet version, as I heard today. Somebody calling it an abbreviated story, the diet version. I kind of like that uh, of my history and substance use. After grad school, becoming a therapist, I went right into, for some reason, the, the substance abuse industry attracted me. I worked for a uh, Midwest adolescent substance abuse treatment center um, with locations in Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Detroit, and eventually uh, the Chicagoland area. And, you know, grad school does not teach you much about substance abuse and treatment other than, you know, the 12 steps, AA and NA, and anybody that uses substances and gets in trouble with it has a problem and therefore should quit and never use any substance ever again. And my work in the adolescent industry, I was like, I, I didn't know if I could subscribe to that. And what really, you know, as, as I was learning and growing in my, uh, you know, beliefs about treating substance use and addiction, I had a a parent come up to me, a parent of a 17 year old child who I was helping with their addiction. And the parent said to me, so based on the teachings here, you mean to tell me once my child is, is better and, and not, you know, using these substances when, when she turn, you know, decides to get married 10 years down the road, I can't enjoy a glass of champagne with my daughter at her wedding. It's like, wow, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. And that really started my pursuit of looking at alternate forms of treating substance use and abuse and, and looking at what it really means. Now, in my field, I do not diagnose addiction. That is not a clinical term. That is definitely a 12-step AA term. What I'm able to diagnose or what I'm trained to diagnose is substance use and abuse problems. Now, uh, I believe we have mild, moderate, and severe, um, and that's what we work on. But even in my work with uh, Logotherapy and Dr. Frankel, I've definitely brought much more of that into the treatment of substance use and abuse and into my own personal beliefs. Many people, look, my belief is the occasional escape from reality or tendency to relax is a very human need. Um, but when it goes too far, there's a problem and it's often a lack of meaning that brings people to excessive use. I think that's a really great... Um continue jumping off point for us because, you know, what I had to do if I were, while I was a rabbi, um, because I represent, of course, in that role, when I used to represent that role, I don't represent it anymore. Um, I had to be able to justify what I was doing. You know, how does a rabbi align values, the values of the Jewish people with this substance? Is that possible? And I was challenged on this. I like I'd had to do my work before I would was willing to put my name on this effort, and um, I did. I started to study. I mean, I had used cannabis before. I actually inhaled it, not just smoked it. Um, honestly, I, I never, I never really enjoyed it. I still don't enjoy it. I was in the cannabis industry for three years. I would go to the the Vegas um, show, you know, the the conference there, and. It, it's just they're giving it to you and I would walk away from it because I don't like it personally 
but it's because it doesn't work for me. I had to grapple with it, though, at a moral, ethical level. And here's what I came to um, in my own studies and my own um, formation of my opinions around it. It's a plant. Plants are not good and they're not bad. They're amoral. They have no meaning. Grain has no meaning inherent to it. And that's getting into our conversation. Grapes have no meaning. Now, what we do with them imparts meaning, or I would say makes them meaningless or worse, nihilistic and destructive. You can take a grape and turn it into that glass of wine and, you know, toast your daughter at her wedding. Or you can take it and put it into a brown paper bag and lose your life in that bottle. What you do with it makes it moral or immoral, but it is amoral. And the same is true with this plant called cannabis. It has no inherent value. Um, I'll take it one step further. For You'll find this interesting. I think our audience will too. In the book of Exodus, in the Torah, in the Bible, um, Exodus, I want to say, I'll put it in the show notes maybe, but 32.23, I believe, is the chapter and verse. It talks about the things that the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, would bring to the temple for sacrifice. And one of the things they would bring are incense. And one of those incense in Hebrew is called uh, kone bosem. And many of the commentators say it is what it sounds like, kone bosem, cannabis, cannabis. Cannabis was part of the sacrificial system, part of the ritualizing of this process. It shouldn't be that shocking because if you look at Native American traditions or other traditions, they use plants in their ritual process, in their medicinal process. And I don't think most people realize most of what we're putting on our body that we call medicine began as a plant. It's been synthesized, it's been changed, but it began as a plant. So to me, that's the starting point as opposed to starting with, it's bad, it's good. That is a simplistic worldview that doesn't work when we're trying to talk about legalization, when we're trying to talk about consequences and a responsible adult use, right? And I, I love that you're, you know, as a therapist, clinically trained, you're asking these questions from that vantage point. Let's, be, let's get nuanced around these conversations. Well, and, and I don't think we can move forward without being nuanced and looking at that. Um, the, the, the differences there, um, the, the immortality key was the book I'm referencing, and it goes back even farther. So if we think Exodus, what's Exodus, 4,000 years ago, something like that, 5,000? Yeah, give or take, yeah. Come on, man. I expect an expert like you in this. You were a rabbi. I, right? I've been doing my logotherapy thing for too long. <laughs> when was Moses born? Um <laughs> Uh, so the immortality key goes back. So there's a site in Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, I believe, um, that they're finding evidence, I believe it was 12,000 years ago, of the use of, of grains and, and, and hallucinogenics, not just cannabis, but uh, different psychedelics. Ergot was a common one. There's a lot, I mean, get into that book. It's, it's fabulous. There's a lot of history that goes back over 10,000 years, right? And so I've been saying this in, in uh, classes I teach, but as well with clients. Human beings have been using these substances. Indigenous people have been using the substances, the plants local to them for thousands of years. What's the problem? Why do we have a problem with it today? Well, the problem goes back about 100 years ago um, when some of this stuff was still legal. You know, you could go down to the corner Walgreens, you could get a little vial of opium and, you know, you'd get a little tincture and, and you could use that. Uh, cocaine. Come on, guys. We all know this. Why is Coca-Cola called Coca-Cola? Because it had cocaine in it from the start. Um, these substances were, were 
appropriate and approved and legal. Um, but we started to see problems in, in society. We started to see people over drinking. We started to see people with the brown paper bag laying in gutters. And so, you know, what happens when there's social problems? Well, the government feels it needs to step in because we weren't taking care of it ourselves. And they stepped in and made things criminal. They, they you know, illegalized some of them. And now, a hundred years later, we are starting to talk about legalization. And we are just now able to do good research. We just learned a while, a couple decades ago, going back to your point of CBD, um, just like the human brain has opiate receptors, opiate receptors coming from opium, a natural plant that we get heroin from, but we also get our pain relievers from those things that help us to you know, alleviate pain after oral surgery, after injuries, things like that. We have opiate receptors in the brain. We also have endocannabinoid receptors in the brain, receptors meant to receive the different components of CBD. And it's believed to uh, be highly helpful in different regulations of, of the respiratory system, appetite. We're just now learning about this because we're just now open to do research. And, um, you know, we're not even touching on, and I don't want to touch on the social implications of all of these things because I was involved for two years, South Central Los Angeles, after um, we sold the cannabis company. I wanted to stay in the cannabis industry and do good and take this plant and make it become uh, a catalyst for positive change and reparation. And so I was involved in cannabis social equity. Now I have different feelings a few years later about um, what that means. But at the time, anyways, I learned a tremendous amount about the war on drugs and the consequences to particular populations, um, particularly the African-American population here in America and the, the oh, devastating impact of the war on drugs. So, you know, again, we don't have to go down this road, but there are deep implications, consequences for us not being sophisticated and not ex zooming out and looking at this thing holistically, legally, and, and you know, from a pharmaceutical and you know, medicinal and uh, regulatory perspective, all these things. But that's getting into our conversation of meaning, right? Meaning isn't just this blanket statement. It's meaningful. It's meaningless. I see people who smoke way too much, and they go beyond the point of meaningfulness. I see other people who use it in a context that is deeply meaningful. I just counseled a woman yesterday who's using it as part of her um, cancer protocols, mm -hmm. right? It's deeply meaningful because she can't eat without it. And it gives her an appetite so that she can fuel her body and have a fighting chance at this thing. Again, context and intention. Mm -hmm. These are important pieces of any conversation. I don't care what we're talking about. Is it meaningful or is it meaningless? Well, and, and the proof over the past thousands of years is people use these for religious experiences. Many of these substances are believed to put us in touch with that, that we don't, with ultimate meaning, as we call it, with God, with the afterlife, with different things. And that's got to be meaningful. But because so many substances were criminalized, um, we, we turned out to find them as meaningless. And, and I will go down that path for a little bit because there's a great book called Chasing the Scream by one of my favorite authors, Johan Hari, which generated a Hulu movie a couple of years ago. I believe it was The People versus Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday was a famous uh, blues singer in the 1920s and 30s. 
after the U.S. had the failed attempt at prohibition, and then we said, okay, sorry, didn't mean to take your alcohol away. You can have it back. There was a gentleman by the name of Anslinger who was uh, responsible for um, you know breaking into taverns and speakeasies and dumping everybody's alcohol out when he realized he was about to be out of a job because prohibition was no longer a, a law. Um, he said, man, I, I've got to find a boogeyman. And uh, Mr. Anslinger was a notable racist. He knew uh, the African-American culture, um, especially musicians, use cannabis. And he, he targeted them with great intention and uh, actually drove Bill Ho Billie Holiday herself to, uh, to an early death. But he was responsible for movies like Reefer Madness. He was responsible for all the policies that criminalized marijuana just because he wanted a job. Now, according to the book, I would recommend you read the book. Chasing the Screen by Johan Hari, or check out the movie, The People vs. Billy Holiday. Form your own opinions. But we have an interesting history over the past hundred years of taking these things and saying they're illegal, but we don't know why or how. And when we look at indigenous people over thousands of years, they didn't need it to be illegal. So and from a logotherapeutic perspective, I'm a, I'm a libertarian on these types of issues. You know, I, I have a complex sort of political mindset, as, as do you and probably most of our listeners. Like anything else, it's rarely for me is it black or white, either or. And on these type of topics, I'm libertarian for the logotherapeutic reason, because I believe that the power of choice is incumbent upon every man and woman amongst us. I say man and woman specifically and not child, because I do believe that this should be beyond the realm of children's choice, just like a lot of things, you know, in our society should be. But if you're a grown man, a grown woman, and you're capable of, you know, exercising choice, it's your right to exercise bad choice. Our work is not to remove choices from people. Our work is to learn how to access the defiant power of our spirit to choose consciously. I do not want to create a society where you don't have choice to go into a bar. I want to create a society where you choose why you're going in and when you're going in and how you're going in and getting out of that bar. That to me is logotherapy. You are such an ageist. Why shouldn't children be allowed to use these substances? Be what's wrong with you? And I, I say that jokingly because there's very good scientific reason children. And I have to talk to a lot of adolescents about this, right? Like, hey, when you're older, that's up to you. Make a responsible choice. But during those phases of critical brain development, we do not. You know, there's enough garbage in our environment that's altering uh, brain development in adolescence. We don't want to uh, add further substances. Um, yeah, Responsible choice that should be, you know, right? We talk about choosing meaningfully, choosing responsible, your ability to respond. And that's that should be with substances as well. There can be great benefit in some of these. We're not quite sure what because we haven't been able to do research for 100 years. Um, certain things are still, you know, and I have to say this all the time certain things are still illegal in certain states, and you should not break the law in your state or your wherever you're at. Um, there are times when you're not there that trying to learn about these things, even reading about them, even watching movies, reading books can be helpful and can inform responsible decision-making. And when government, again, this is more political than probably we want to go, but when government oversteps and starts taking away choices mm -hmm. from, you know, from this, but even trivial things. I remember it was 10 years ago or so in New York city tried to ban big gulps. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> 
to to you know to crack down on diabetes and obesity no you know that you are stripping human beings of their one and only true power so yes i ban big gulps in my house right because i don't want my kids i mean literally no but we don't go out of our way and buy them if my kids sneak a big gulp right they're not going to get grounded but we 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 believe our kids don't have the right to determine their diets, right? You know, completely. If they did, my son would just eat donuts all day. So there, there has to be some parameters, but not by the government and, and certainly not to that extent. Yeah, there has to be a wide sort of a birth of, of parameters, but within that, there's got to be a lot more room for people to exercise choice mm-hmm. and to exercise bad choice. Or maybe, maybe a better way to say it is, is not to exercise their choice and become addicts. And to me, that is a necessary side of the the flip side of choosing mm-hmm. is the addiction piece. Absolutely. You know, why does the government step in to, to regulate things? Well, when they feel, th- those people that we elect feel that we are not responsible enough to make our own decisions or we're behaving irresponsibly, right? So when uh, the, the big gulp, what I like to refer to as diabetes in a cup, um, was banned, like they felt like, well, you know, the, the cost of diabetes was becoming too much in New York, so we're going to regulate. No, you got you, you to gotta allow people to choose because much like prohibition, much like the, the black market cannabis trade for the past hundred years, human beings will choose either way. And, you know, there's different ways to handle that. There are different countries. Portugal's one that decriminalized everything and is, is really happy with the results. They take that money and they put it towards treatment of those people that either, you know, try something and can't choose responsibly or fall off the rails but in the end you're right the lat you know the, the greatest thing we have as human beings is our ability to choose and we even get to choose poorly unhealthy irresponsibly and when those choices happen thank goodness there are professionals there are medical doctors trained in diabetes and there are substance abuse therapists like me and, and other people out there to help but in the end it's still still your choice whether you want to listen to your MD about your diabetes. It's it's still your responsibility whether you want to get help for your substance use and abuse. It's still your choice. And uh, you know, in our world of binary, either or, black or white, we we do a disservice when we treat things as all or nothing. Now, I know addiction has you know complexities with that because. It's, it's the woman who came to you and said, does this mean I can't make a toast with a glass of champagne at my daughter's wedding, right? But I think we really have to unpack that, that one statement, because I don't believe in all or nothing. And I honestly don't think you can be all or nothing. If you're a recovering addict, there's no way around it. You will come in contact with alcohol. You will partake in alcohol. You may not be drinking explicitly, but it's found in your foods or it's found in your medicines or, you know, there are situations where you, you, again, like that woman, let's, let's unpack. What was she really asking? Can I celebrate, you know, alcohol is off the positives of alcohol when used responsibly is we use it to celebrate. So what do you say to her? What did you, what did you say to her? At, at that time I was B, I was so new in the field. I just kind of sat there and drooled a little bit and said, Wow, I'm going to have to think about that. And as I said, that really 
started my research into, well, you know, AA isn't the only way, 12 steps isn't the only way, what else is out there? And, and I, I was quite honest with her. I said, wow, that really, that strikes me. You know, at, at that point, I don't even think I was a parent yet, but maybe I was a, a parent to a toddler. And I was thinking, wow, that that's a significant question, especially, you know, at the age of 17 or 22 or 25 or 30 to make any statement, I shall not ever do this again. That's hard for anybody. That's very black and white. It's it's incredibly hard. And here's a here's a practical example. I mean, that's practical. And this is another one. Uh, I have kids who are ones of drinking age, mm -hmm. so it's no longer a problem. But his younger sister is um, 18 mm -hmm. and we were in Israel and 18 is the legal drinking age. And now we moved here. So she's half Israeli and half American and we move here and it's not the legal drinking age. Mm -hmm. And so she's at college drinking and then she comes home and she says to me over Thanksgiving, can I drink here? Right. There you go. Like this is where it's nuanced. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and, she, you know, her expectation is because, you know, in Israel, yes, here, no, but at college, yes. And now back here, no. So now she's going to have to go to her friend's house and pretend like she's not drinking, even though we all know she's drinking. It's just these yes and no's are just not so easy to, to maintain. No, but what is easy, what should be easy as a parent is having a conversation about responsible choices with your child. And I know you do that, but I want to put that point out there for all of our listeners, right? Um, I was just talking to somebody earlier about talking to a, to a child about the responsible use of social media. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. But substances are very much like that. You can use them responsibly to inform you, to, to elevate your mood, or you can use them irresponsibly and just like social media, become quite addicted to them. Um, and that's a conversation, you know, my, my, my girls knew I was a substance abuse therapist for a long time and they constantly had, dad, wait, you, you, you help people with this, but why, why do you have a, a glass there? Or why are you drinking a beer? So, well, let's talk about that. We've been having that conversation in this house for a long, long time. It's, it's really powerful. I know this is just the beginning of many conversations because, um, you know, to me, this is a, I mean, to us, this is a, a top, a, a relevant topic. This is a hot topic and it's, it's just becoming become hotter. I mean, outside my window here in Denver, Colorado, sort of the epicenter of a lot of these conversations. And one of the things I found at being a rabbi in that space is there weren't a lot of rabbis or ministers or priests or therapists in that space. Mm -hmm. It's we've, and this is what happens when you just leave it to the shadows, it takes on a shadow quality. It goes underground. It doesn't go away. And what our job, I think, as, as logotherapists is to bring these conversations out to the streets, to real life, to the bedroom and to the bars and all these places where that's not what you know, you, meaning doesn't happen in the bar. Meaning doesn't happen in sex. Meaning doesn't happen with cannabis. It should. Okay. I thought you were going to. I wanted like running man just freaked out that sex isn't meaningful. Um, but it, you're right. It's no different than weed, right? It can be. It can be, right? And it can be if you allow it to be, if you make it. Um, so then let's, we, we promised we would talk about this idea of sober January and be the goalie, right? So let's, let's segue because I, I agree with you. We're, we're going to have some great philosophical discussions this year about the emergence of, you know, legal hallucinogenics of, you know, the cannabis continuing to grow and, and what happens, you know, nationwide with it. So what about those people that this month decided, you know what, 
I, I'm going to step away from all substances, but especially alcohol. They call it the sober January. What do you think about that? Good idea, bad idea? You know, the, the idea of setting, you know, I, we, we've talked recently that, you know, B is not a goals man. Goals for the first of the year are stupid. And, and look, I agree. New, new year, new you is garbage. New you, new year, true you we came up with. But it can be helpful to set some goals. It can be helpful to cleanse yourself for a month. What do you think about that? Well, my, you know, my blog that I wrote, as you know, you're the one person who read it was, um, I, I actually sent it to running man. He read it too. The two of you read it. And actually I got, I already got a lot of response. I don't always, but you know, this is a hot topic. Yeah. Um, I, I Hockey, hate is a hot topic, right? Hockey and my blogs. Um, <laughs> I, I hate goals because, uh, you know, for the obvious reasons that they're worth the paper they're written on. And I think in many ways we use them as a as candy, right? It tastes good in the moment and, and it's not nutritious. It's not good for you. This is not long-term strategy. And what I said in the article was I'd rather, instead of, you know, hit those goals, I'd rather be the goalie. And I use your sport. I don't understand the sport and it terrifies me. I don't want to lose my teeth, but be the goalie. That guy's badass, right? I just watch even the mask is freaking awesome, right? Mm -hmm. It's scary. And he's just armored up. But what is he doing it for? He's taking those shots on goal, one after the other, after the other. And I want to be that guy, right? And, and my point in it was the goals are going to fall through. I don't care which freaking goal you set. You're going to fail in some way, shape, or form eventually. And when that happens, Who's the man in the arena, right? Or the woman in the arena taking those shots? Are you able to be that goalie to hit, get hit over and over, to fall off the wagon, to get back up again, to dust yourself off and to keep knocking down those goals, right? And so to me, it's a resilience conversation. It's yeah. not an aspirational, this is utopia I'd like to live in. Well, and I think that goes to the very real idea that uh, by the time this podcast is released, most people would have failed at their New Year's resolutions. That is not my opinion. That is actually a st statistical fact somewhere that if you failed at your resolution at this point, great, get up, dust off, be the goalie. As you said, those pucks come through anywhere from one to three, maybe sometimes four a game, but you don't give up, right? Because then there's 30 more saves that most goalies make in an average hockey game. Um, and so be the goalie. Get up, dust yourself off, and, and start really figuring out what you want to do. If, if you failed in your resolution, why? Now what? Right? Because just because you failed one day doesn't mean it's over. What is the overall, what is the end result you want to achieve? And how do you get back on the horse? How do you get back in the net and, and start playing again? Um, have you ever played goalie? No, no, I was usually uh, defense because I was a larger skater. And uh, no, I always had somebody with a mask behind me. And, and I do recall in floor hockey once at my alma mater, Ball State University, we were playing floor hockey and my, my good friend, the goalie was behind me. We didn't wear helmets in, in floor hockey. That was not a good idea because I took a puck to the side of the head and goalie said, wow, uh, I've never seen anybody's eyes roll back in their head like that. I mean, that obviously hurts, but does it, I would imagine it still hurts getting hit by a 100-mile-an-hour puck, even with the padding. 
Oh, I, I mean, even most players wear you know a fair degree of padding, not as much as a as a goalie because we want to be more mobile. But yeah, I mean, you, even through the pads, man. Uh, I think the fastest recorded slap shot was around one thirteen, maybe. Average is anywhere eighty five to ninety five miles an hour of vulcanized rubber. That stuff's not soft, uh, and it's a uh, yeah, it leaves mark. So, so my point with that is only imagining what it's like to get hit by uh, a hockey puck, let alone in the head, which explains a lot, by the way. Uh, Thank you for going there. I'm sure it does. Is that it freaking hurts. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what your goal is. If it's a worthy goal and you don't do it, it should hurt. Like, if not, it's not a worthy goal. Give me a break. And when it when you fall off, when you fail, when whatever it is, it should hurt. And that's where you make your stand. And that's where you find your meaning. It's not in the fulfillment of the goal. It's in that constant perpetual motion towards the goal. That's the point, right? Absolutely. I I will tell you one way it hurts. Uh, I'm I'm in a a little men's accountability group starting at the beginning of the year to hold each other accountable for different goals. And uh, one way I I saw this poor soul um, eviscerated for his lack of accountability yesterday horrible texts of shame and guilt and and good-humored right uh, uh male uh, jabbing but it was an important thing to realize like hey if, if you're not going to do this it's going to hurt and we're going to help you uh feel that hurt so you get back up on the horse it's so helpful to have people that that hold you accountable and you can be accountable too it's great to have a team around you just like a goalie to say hey good job or uh can you maybe stop those from going through the net a little bit more often Um, And at the very least, pick yourself back up off the ice and do it again, right? Absolutely. And if you need help with that, keep in mind the Victor Frankl Meaning Academy is starting your search for meaning in just a couple of weeks. Uh, We will launch the first week of February. You can sign up at any time. The launch is really just our meetings with us, but the the, um, evergreen content will have the curriculum we're recording videos for the learning library has got its first few videos ready to go the community should be up here soon jump on go to themeaningacademy.com find out more about it and you can always contact me or b or elise to ask questions about it and uh, remember right now the low, low introductory rate of $49 a month. My goodness, you get the three of us twice a month, plus all of the other goodness for less than 50 bucks. That's like less than a couple hockey pucks. Come on. Um, so, <laughs> correct. So um, since the running man already passed out because we're beyond his range, um, we can just go. We're, we're passionate about this topic, B. He, we can go, we can go uh, just a moment longer and tell our audience that we, you know, we restructured it. We, we, um, sort of market tested it, I guess, if you will. And what we heard was that people want more fluidity in and out and, you know, just sort of being able to not to commit long enough to get started, but not so long that, you know, it's a marriage. And that's what we want to provide. You just come in for a month, check it out. We're going to be, um, you know, marching forward along a curriculum, but every um, session stands alone. And so you'll get what you need in that particular session on our online conversation and you'll take it from there. But just jump in in February, join our conversation of meaning seekers as we continue these conversations. If you like these conversations, we're just going to be riffing together um, starting February 7th, I believe. February 7th. That will be our first uh, morning. It's actually noon Eastern. Um, 
Yeah. So our beta test, right? We did this, these uh, meaning seekers, uh, meaning masterminds a few months ago, and they were awesome. I had a blast. You seem to have a blast. I know Elise had fun when she's there, but the people that came in really seem to gain a lot. And so that's what we're extending in your search for meaning is this idea of, first of all, look, you know, if you've listened to the two of us long enough, what logo nerds we are. And this is really our opportunity to totally nerd out record i mean i've got outlines for probably a dozen lectures and, and more forming b has you know we've put together an amazing 24 module curriculum for your personal search for meaning you can do it yourself it's all self-guided with our support every other month but that was the one thing these meaning masterminds the one thing we picked up on we are craving people out there are craving community and that's really what we wanted to put together. Not just a couple logo nerds ranting about how amazing Dr. Frankel is and, and all these other things, but an opportunity to, to connect with other meaning seekers. And so we're going to have a platform that you can connect on anytime, 24-7. Chat with me, B, Elise, whatever faculty we bring on. It, we're excited about it. So hopefully okay. you are too. Last, last thing I'll say, and, and if you've listened thus far, you'll respond to us, which you, you which term do you prefer? Do you prefer to be like Dr. Dan and be a logo nerd? Or do you prefer to be like me and be logo chic? I'm not going, I'm not going with logo nerd, buddy. I'm not doing it. That is that sexual eight hole coming right out. I'm a logo chic. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, y'all, that's all we got for today. So go out there and be responsible, whatever direction you choose to take this conversation, take away responsibility, the ability to choose your response. And Dan, what do we say? Live your life with meaning, purpose, and resilience. Take care, everybody. That's all we got to now. for now. Signing off, the Logo Nerd and Logo Chic. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Baruch Halevi. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review and share this podcast with others. To learn more about the Defiant Spirit, get more inspirational content, or see how we might work together to live your Defiant Spirit, visit DefiantSpirit.org. Until then, take back your power and live your Defiant Spirit.